This happened fairly recently. About six months ago, my brother, mother, Ann and I were driving home from my grandparents' house. It was about 9 p.m. and we were driving down a very long road that stretched for miles on end. At this point of time we couldn't see anything without our headlights so they were on the brightest setting. As we were driving down this road we suddenly heard what seemed to be a motorcycle revving next to us. But as we looked out of our windows we saw nothing. This noise kept fluctuating getting louder and quieter as we kept going down the road. This noise dragged out for another 5 minutes as we were trying to figure out where it came from. We turned off the radio, opened and closed the windows and even stopped the car to only still hear this revving noise, and keep in mind there were no houses, cars, towns for miles. We still haven't figured out where the noise came from and haven't heard it since. We still talk about this paranormal occurrence to this day as a reminder to never drive down that road at night again. When I was a kid I lived in Clinton, Tennessee. Both parents worked full-time, so I was often sent over to stay with my grandparents who had a plot of land in the vicinity of, but not right in, Mosheim, near Greenville. Both of them had been in East Tennessee for their whole lives, and that area for a good many years. They had been established at their home for some decades before this story and remained there a good time after. Recently, I had reason to return to that area Tennessee after having spent the majority of my adult life in Minnesota. Being in and around the area, driving the same roads made me reminiscent about my lazy summer days tucked away at my grandparents. Learning to shoot on the same .22 with which grandpa had taught mom, eating fish at a neighbor's stock pond, or spotting deer and bear with binoculars from the back porch, when I relate this to my mom, she in turn told me a story about a time I scared my grandpa half to death and lied about hanging out with Bigfoot. At first I had no idea what she was on about. Then I remembered exactly what actually happened with startling clarity. New context given by the experience adulthood provides. And no, this is not about Bigfoot or cryptid. Before we start, some information about my grandparents' land. Their house was on a small hill surrounded by a grass lawn. The lawn gave way to a smallish hayfield, then the wood line. Those woods lasted for a good half mile to either side of the home, and a good several miles to the back. I hated the hayfield because it was too pokey to play in, but liked to hang out in a creek that ran behind it. To get there I would walk to the edge of the property just in the wood line to avoid the hay. While at my grandparents the only rules were that I stay where I could see the house, so the house could see me. I was to take a whistle with me anywhere I went went. I didn't take the whistle, seeing it as a badge of my regrettably young age. And the best part of the creek was out of sight of the house. That was the only stretch where it got deeper than my knees, and thus the only part where I could swim. Naturally, I spent much of my time in that water splashing around, skipping stones, and being a kid. One day I was playing in the creek when I noticed someone. It was a man, a stranger, on the bank watching me. He had long hair, a beard and pale skin so dirty it was stained. 
I could not tell his age and simply thought of him as old. I have no better guess now, as he clearly went through long years of hard living. He wore no shirt on, no pants, only a wrap of dirty cloth around his waist that I thought of as a Moses dress thanks to some illustrated Bible stories. Around his neck there were multiple necklaces made from knotted tatters of cloth, fiber, and string. In those knots were various pieces of detritus, mostly bones, but some flowers and bits of dark glass. When I first saw him there by the creek I was terrified. Terrified. Frozen still. The man, however, was smiling. He gestured from his squat with an outstretched arm, fingers down, and a kind of don't stop from me wave. I didn't react, startled and reeling. Then he splashed at me, still smiling. He did it again. I splashed back. And soon we were playing. We both threw water at each other. He jumped into the creek and stomped around with me, laughing all the while. He threw rocks into the water and so did I. I pushed him, he pushed me back. We carried on for some minutes until my grandma called for me. With her voice a switch had turned off. The man stopped in his tracks gaze fixed back toward the house. Then as my grandma kept on hollering, he looked to me. He crept back to his side of the creek barely disturbing the water, then slid into the brush, completely silent the whole way, holding my gaze. Once he was out of sight I waited in the water until my grandma found me. She wanted to know if I was alone. I said no. She became very tense asking who was with me while looking around. I didn't answer, didn't know how. Seeing no one. She pulled me back to the house without any more words, gripped like iron the whole time. At the house the real inquisition began. I didn't really have new words, the event in this reaction overwhelming my ability to explain. Such silence further irked my grandma and I was swiftly placed in a corner, held without bail, awaiting patriarchal judgment. Around an hour later my grandpa came home from work. He was told about my churlishness and was ready to set into me again when I started talking. I told him about the man, hairy and old, dressed like Moses. About how we played then he disappeared. I remember they digested this for a few minutes before sending me to my room. I was happy to go, and happier still grandpa did not yell like he usually did when misbehaved. Later I was brought out for dinner. I ate in the kitchen with Grandma, but Grandpa called me to the back porch. He was on the swinging bench, looking out over the hayfield turned red by the setting sun. He had kicked off his boots and put them next to his shotgun. I knew that was odd for the gun to be out of the closet. Previously, we had used it to shoot bottles, some I wouldn't throw them into the air like they were clay pigeons. These escapades were accompanied with speeches about how the gun was dangerous and only for adults to use. He went through my story again. His tone deadly serious. Eventually he asked me how Harry was the man, really. I told him very, thinking this was the right answer. He asked where, I told him everywhere like a bear. He ruminated on this and I grew more nervous. Worried I was in trouble, or causing trouble, just wanting the trouble, 
wherever it lie, to end. So when he finally asked me to swear, in the name of Christ and on my mother that I was telling the truth about everything, I said I had been joking. He finally yelled in, and sent me back to my room. The family memory became that I had hit by the creek and made up a tale about Bigfoot. At the time everyone was very upset with me and I was forbidden from going back to the creek or anywhere out of sight. The enforcement of this rule, like the others, was lackluster. Even so, for a time I didn't go to the creek. In my memory I stayed away for a very long time, but I am sure it was only a few days that hiatus feeling interminable to my elementary aged self. When I did start going to the creek, I took a bucket of toys, mostly Godzilla, and a thick stick plucked from the wood line on the way. I think I was conflicted about what to do if the man came back, imagining either impressing him with my toy collection or clubbing him. Or both in turn. When he did show back up, he appeared next to me as I dozed under a tree on my side of the creek. I was once again gripped with terror. He was not smiling. His face expressionless as he lurked beside me, having watched for who knows how long before I smelled him. I scrambled away leaving behind my stake and toys. Coming to my feet a yard out, I stood in the sun while the man watched me from the shade. Eventually he crouched and started to look through my bucket. I remember becoming indignant as he examined my toys one by one only to toss them into the dirt. It became too much and I started to lecture the man, telling him about how he got me in trouble, how he was a weirdo, how he stank. At some point he stopped looking through my things and calmly watched my tirade. Face still neutral, eyes analytic. Once I had concluded my lecture I sat back under the tree to pout, having become hot in the sun. I remember the man made a noise, a grinding kind of snort, and when I looked over at him, he was chuckling while he inspected the last few figures in my bucket. I wanted to laugh too, but was more determined to stay sullen. Once everything was out of the bucket to put one figure, Ghidorah, back into the bucket. He then stood to his hunched fullest, took the bucket by its handle, began to make his way back into the woods. I stayed by the tree until he turned, said something, not a word I knew or know, and gestured with a forward sweep of his hand. At first I didn't comply despite knowing he wanted me to follow. After a few moments he yipped, clicked his teeth, and gestured again more emphatically. With this further prompt, I did get up and come along, the man making approving noises and putting on his smile again. We went into the woods. The man lead, but he was naturally quicker and quieter making it hard to keep up. Eventually, he would stop when he lost me, knocking on trees with sticks and whistling arrhythmically so that I may find him in the vegetation. He never came back for me, opting instead to guide me forward with the noises. I became lost, having only a vague sense of my grandparents' place being behind me. After some time, maybe fifteen minutes we came to a vault. The man had me wait there, indicated by patting the ground, before going into the tree line alone. He returned from a different direction pulling a sled. It was made from half of a discarded plastic drum and lined with small pelts and smooth bark. 
On the back half there rested the fly-covered carcasses squirrels, opossums, and other critters savaged into anonymity. On the pulling-in woven pouches were tied into place on it by the same eclectic cordage that made the man's necklaces. He put my bucket on the sled and tossed Ghidorah in a pouch. He then called me closer with a glottal noise and beckoning wave. I saw the sled's pouches held many odds and ends. Dried salamanders, mushrooms, metal bits, glass fragments. From one the man pulled a square made from bound together sticks, just big enough to slip over my wrist. From another he pulled a piece of fool's gold and a small shard of geode crusted with a bit of purple crystal. These he handed to me with an air of business and a few more utterings of nonsense. He then patted the group for me to sit again. I did so without much bewilderment, understanding we had traded the same as exchanging Pokemon cards at recess. I did not much miss Ghidorah anyway, as he was a bad guy. The bucket was a loss. In retrospect I think Ghidorah was chosen because his still gold scales resembled something valuable. The bucket for its obvious ability to hold things. The man came back in gesture for me to follow by slapping his thigh. I did this readily. During the hike back I tried to keep up and pay attention. I did so moderately well, having to be whistled over a few times. I did notice that our path was not straight. The man lead me one way and then another, making turns unneeded by the lay of the land. We eventually came out by the creek, but from a different approach than we had left. I could hear my grandma calling for me again, not from up on the hill, from out in the field. The man would not cross the creek, but pushed me to do so. I did, but did not go to my grandma. Instead I crept back to the house and around to the opposite side. There I laid the shrubs by our front door pretending to sleep I was found. I swore I had been there the whole time. When I was sent back to my room I placed my fool's gold, crystal, and charm in my bedside table for safekeeping. The next day I went back to the creek to pick up my toys. The man was not there. However throughout that summer he did visit me again, to sit under the tree, or throw rocks at the water, or yammer softy to himself. I would bring snacks and candy to share, and he would likewise give me stringy dried meat, which I ought not to have ate, or honeysuckle blossoms, which I still would eat, taken from my old bucket. He seldom visited long, and never splashed and whooped like he did on that first meeting. At this point you may be wondering why I have posted to Backwoods Creepy and not Backwoods Weirdy Wholesome voice. Well there are two more occasions I wanted to account. One gruesome, one awful. The eventful one occurred near the 4th of July. I had brought two boxes of bang snaps to the creek. The man was initially wary of the little fireworks, but quickly came to appreciate their miniature pyrotechnics. He took the box I gave him gratefully. Even taking the empty box, likely for the wood shavings which are excellent tinder, during the use of the bank snaps I had scared a turtle into the water into the opposite bank. It sat there watching us from the far shore. The man, after stowing the bank snaps in the bucket, noticed the turtle. With little thought he scooped up a smooth stone and threw it with force and accuracy into the turtle. 
He then waded over to retrieve the slider, which struggled meekly in his grasp, one leg knocked clean off. On the side of the river he took from the bucket a new piece of stone. One side was rounded and fit in his hand. The other came to a flinty cutting edge. Working with depth experience the man began chopping the live turtle above its neck, pulling up on the shell top. The thing struggled and bled as it was bisected. The dome eventually coming free, the turtle dropped to mingle its viscera with dirt and sand. The man rinsed the shell in the river then offered it to me. In wordless horror, I ran. That evening I came back to shuffle the dead turtle into the flowing waters of the creek. The shell itself was nowhere to be found. This experience did nor deter me from going to the creek or the man from visiting again. However, sometimes he would try to call me away from the creek with thumps and whistles. I would tell him I heard him and refused to move. On some occasions he would join me. On others he would leave. The last time we met we were sitting under the tree sharing cowtails. From the woods there came whistling and the staccato knocking of a woodpecker. The man looked up and whistled back. There were a few more such exchanges before he stood, collected his bucket, and beckoned for me to follow. I was curious and felt comfortable with the man as a guide, so I did as asked. He took me back to the bald. A direct path this time, periodically stopping to call or respond to the other in the wood. Waiting for us at the bald was a woman and a child. The woman was dressed the same as the man. Topless, wrapped at the waist. She was dirty, with long hair and a wiry frame. The child was in a similar state, wearing a sack that went to their knees. The man sat on the ground and the woman joined him, sitting in his lap partly in his lap but leaning forward so that her elbows rested on her crossed knees. She had dark brown eyes that were fixed to me. The other child would not look up. I didn't know what to do and didn't speak. The other kid lifted the sack to wipe at their nose and I learned under all that dirt they were air. The man made a noise and drummed on woman's bare back. The kid looked at them, still hanging her head, hair covering her face. The woman yammered and swatted at the girl lazily. The man echoing her noises, slapping skin to skin once more. At this bizarre scene the girl approached me, stopping close enough I could smell her and hear her wheezing breath. She was thin, but not emaciated, and slightly taller than me should she have straightened up. The man and woman fussed some more, then the girl leaned close to me and pressed her cheek to mine. Her hair was in between us, greasy and cold. She made no move to embrace me, no move at all. Only pressing limply against me and breathing so loud it was all I could hear. During this time the woman had approached. She pulled the girl back by her shoulder with one hand and delivered a flurry of slaps to the crown of the girl's head. The woman then gathered the girl's hair in one hand, using the other to sweep back her bangs. The girl was then made to look at me, face bare. One side of her jaw was bulged out, smooth skin over a lemon-shaped bump. Her mouth was twisted by this deformity. Her nose faced to one side as if affixed sideways and leaked a trail of clear snot. One eye was bulged and rummy, the other startlingly regular. 
It looked at me, lank and dark brown. The woman gave the girl's head a little shake, spat off to the side, then cooed like a dove as she smiled at me. I ran. There was commotion behind me. I think the girl was pushed to the ground. I did not look back and they did not pursue. My flight ended at my grandparents' house, my absence unnoticed. I chose not to tell anyone what happened. Wanting to forget. Not wanting to get in trouble. Not thinking about the girl, the couple, what was intended for me. I spent that August inside whenever I visited my grandparents. I begged not to be taken, claiming it was boring and lonely. Sometimes, when I sat on the porch or went from the car to the house I'd catch a snippet of bird call on the wind or the distant tapping of wood and hurry inside. My grandma could tell something was wrong and made an effort to entertain me in town. My grandpa cared in his own way, involving me in his errands as he never had before. Eventually school started. Classes and friends eased me away from thoughts of the dirty man or the people in the clearing. Time did the rest. I think now that all of the people in the clearing were of a family. But their features, white skin, brown eyes, brown hair, are common enough that they all could have been unrelated. I am sure they lived together. They knew each other's signs and signals. They used their own words. I know that the Smokies are full of tales of feral people, wild men men, and superstition. I also know that they are full of people living in unlikely ways in unlikely places. And that those real people call others kin. And that through the chain of human connection even a recluse living in a rundown shack is someone somebody. I guess I'm asking if the people in my story are somebody's someone. Or if they are known. Or if their behavior rings any bells, or lies any known intention. I figured here, where the tale would not be discounted out of hand, might be the right place to ask. I live in a small town around 7,000 people, in the suit of Sweden so it's still kinda secluded, especially at night. I still cannot explain what me and my friends saw. The thing about our town is that it gets very quiet close to midnight. This particular night I followed my friend home since she lives in a bad area, time was around 22.30. As usual the only sound was our footsteps and the occasional car passing about one every ten minutes or so. Me and my friend were talking about life when everything went very quiet, I could clearly hear my own breathing. This made both me and my friend stop and have a look around. We were standing in the middle of a schoolyard when we saw a bright light. At first we thought it was a firework or something, but it made no sound at all. It moved past us at roughly 30 kilometer an hour, around 5 meters off the ground. Flew in a straight line before it reached a couple of trees where it sped up and flew away out of sight, still silent and in a straight line. I've tried looking up what it could have been and the closest I've come to finding out is that the ball, roughly the size of a football, was a ball lightning. And still not sure since it was a clear winter night, we rarely have thunderstorms in the winter. The ball didn't have any lightning striking out from it either. It was just a bright white light floating in a straight line, completely silent. 
I have lived in southern New Jersey all my life and naturally have heard all the stories about the Jersey Devil. I haven't believed all of them, but I do believe that the Jersey Devil, or something cryptid, is out there. In the summer of 2006, some friends of mine and I took a ride to the Pine Barrens, about a 30-minute drive. We weren't looking for anything in particular but were hoping we would see something along the lines of proof of the existence of the Jersey Devil. We were on Bulltown Road, near Bastow Village where we had heard of a lot of sightings and some strange things going on around there. As we were driving we passed by an old abandoned house and thought nothing of it. After a while of not seeing much aside from deer and an occasional owl, we decided to turn around. As we went by that old house, we saw what appeared to be bright green eyes peering out a window. Armed with just flashlights, we began to drive up to the house, but then the eyes disappeared. Next, a noise caught the attention of me and my friend who was in the front seat with me. She shone her flashlight in time for us to see something swoop over the car. By the time we could react to it, nothing was around. We went outside to investigate, but all that could be found were hoof prints in the sandy soil. The prints were too big to be deer and too small to be horse. As far as what swooped over the car, it was dark in color but was large, larger than any bird that I know of. I've been a part of many classified missions during my time in the Special Forces, but one particular operation stands out as the most unsettling and inexplicable experience of my career. It was a mission that took us deep into a remote, dense forest, far removed from civilization, and into the very heart of the unknown. The forest was unlike any I had ever encountered before, a place of eerie silence and perpetual twilight. It was as if the very trees conspired to hold their breath, as if they were privy to secrets that the rest of the world was not meant to know. Our team moved through the dense undergrowth with the utmost caution, every footstep echoing ominously in the stillness. As we ventured further into the forest, unsettling occurrences began to unfold around us. Strange figures seemed to lurk in the shadows, just beyond the edge of our vision. They moved with an otherworldly grace, their forms shrouded in a surreal haze. At times, we heard whispers that seemed to come from nowhere, carried on the faintest breath of wind. On one fateful day, as the sun cast long shadows across the forest floor, we encountered the creature that would forever haunt our nightmares. It emerged from the depths of the woods, a monstrous apparition that defied all reason. The creature stood at an imposing height, probably about eight feet tall. Its body was a dark gray with hints of brown, and its presence exuded an air of primal menace. It had a mane of hair that resembled that of a male lion, albeit shorter around the body and legs. But the most unnerving aspect was the way it moved, upright on its back legs, like a grotesque fusion of man and beast. As the creature locked eyes with us, a primal instinct of fear surged through our ranks. We opened fire, bullets tearing through the stillness of the forest, but the creature was unfazed. It roared with a guttural fury that rattled our very souls, and with the speed that belied its size, it vanished into the wilderness, leaving us stunned and trembling. We searched the area where the creature had been, 
our nerves on edge, but there was no sign of it. It was as though the forest itself had swallowed the creature whole, leaving behind only the echoes of its chilling roar. In the aftermath of that encounter, our team was left shaken and bewildered. We questioned the very nature of the world we thought we knew. Was this creature a product of some secret experiment or a manifestation of the untamed wilderness? We may never know the answer. On July 11, 2020, at approximately 22 hours, in Skewkillhaven, Pennsylvania, my son and I were on top of the roof after observing the local fireworks show. The fireworks had ended five plus minutes prior to this. He was positioning his camera towards the constellation of the Big Dipper, Ursa Major, in order to photograph Comet Neowise. I noticed something moving. The object, as best as I can describe it, was the shape of a manta ray as you would see it in the ocean looking at its underbelly from below the creature. This object moved quite fast from right to left almost directly above us. My son then saw the object and turned attempting to photograph it. I lost sight of the object after only maybe three seconds of seeing it move, but he said he saw the object make a turn and backtrack toward where it came from before losing sight of it. We both described the object as almost translucent with no visible lights at all. Earlier I was flying my Typhoon drone to photograph the fireworks, so the size was similar, but moving much faster. I am unsure if the object was 300 plus feet above us, or higher and larger than the drone, though the speed tells me it was lower. Again this was not a drone or any type of aircraft. It made no noise and had no visible wings. The entire episode lasted maybe 3 to 5 seconds. By the way, I have been a police officer in this town for over 20 years. In the spring of 2009, I was sent to Chechnya with my platoon to fight the enemy using unconventional means. Our mission was to divert supply lines and gather intelligence by talking to villagers. I remember how rainy and foggy it was during that time of year. One night, while retrieving a cache of buried weapons, my team noticed some lights in the forest. We could see them with the naked eye, but they were quite far off. It appeared to be ten small lights, all moving erratically. I then noticed what sounded like voices or whispers. It sounded like two people speaking Chechen. It was very quiet at first, but it started to gain in frequency until it sounded like they were whispering right next to my ear. Soon, ten more voices joined in the whispering, all speaking at once. I began to panic, fearing that we had been made. I thought maybe the lights were a distraction, a common tactic used by Chechen soldiers, and we would be ambushed. My teammate and good friend Ivan suddenly started speaking loudly, as if he was trying to communicate with his father who had died two years earlier. He started to run towards the light, dropping his gun and his pack. I assumed that he had lost it or the enemy was playing with our minds. Fearing for my friend and worrying he might give up our position, I chased after him. Ivan just kept repeating, I'm coming, father. He was in a dead sprint running towards the light. 
As we got closer and the lights got bigger, I found it odd that I could make out no definition in them. Nobody or nothing was behind them. They just looked like lights floating in the air. That was strange to me, I recalled. Ivan, now on his knees, arms at his side, was in front of a body of water, directly in front of the lights. He seemed to be in a trance, and despite my attempts, I couldn't believe what was happening before my eyes. My friend Ivan seemed to be in a trance, talking to his father in the strange lights in front of us, despite my attempts to snap him out of it. In that moment, my only concern was to avoid getting shot. Eventually, the commander arrived and looked at Ivan and the lights before muttering, the fairies have him. I had never considered anything paranormal before, and I didn't know what to make of it. Ivan eventually passed out, and when I looked back up from his body, the lights were gone. It was terrifying. We carried Ivan back to our original location, but he had no memory of what happened. It was like he was in a coma, and he couldn't remember anything from that day. The experience was extremely weird, and it's the strangest event that ever happened in my entire life. Looking back, I believe that the lights had sinister intentions for us, possibly trying to lure Ivan to the water to drown him. The next day, we just nodded at each other and carried on with the missions. In the end, I became disenchanted with the Russian military and exchanged important information with U.S. officials. As a result, I was granted citizenship and now live in the U.S., having cut off all ties with my family. I have resumed my career as an infantryman, now as an American. A friend and I were walking up the Fandon Trail and about 100 yards into it I saw what appeared to me as a Bigfoot impression right in the middle of the trail. There was no doubt as to what it was and as my friend caught up with me I asked him if he saw what I saw. There was no doubt in his mind of what he saw seeing either. The print was about 14 to 16 inches long but what impressed me was the width which was about 6-8 inches just below the toes. We walked about a mile up and continued to see these prints. I was armed with a .45 automatic and my friend with a 9mm so we felt safe but continued slowly with no smells or incidents. After about a mile I noticed another set of prints only smaller come right into the trail this kind of made my friend and I a little more nervous. About 20 feet later a third set appeared. This set was a little smaller than the second but we were sure that it was a third. At this time we decided to turn back. We smelled nothing, heard nothing but felt as if there was a presence that knew we were there. I had woke up early in the morning to use the restroom. When I went to step back into my room I noticed something in my window staring at me. It was dark in the room and my window was wide open without a screen. This was also a trailer house which had higher windows than most homes. I seen a reddish-orange reflection of two eyes looking at me. After a second of trying to see what it was I realized it wasn't anything I've ever seen before. I stood in the hallway with this animal staring at me for what felt like 30 seconds but was more like 5-10 seconds before I had enough courage to scream. I was so scared I couldn't move or scream. This thing had to have been seven half feet tall. 
I measured it from the ground up to the window where the top of the head would have been. This home is kinda out in the hills and is a forested area with a lot of rabbits and there was also a grapevine about 3 feet from my window. This image has never left my mind and when I talk about it, it makes that fear come over me again. I know what I saw and would take a lie detector test to prove what I saw, and I do believe it was a Bigfoot. It's 3.43 AM in Tempe. My friend and I often like to explore parks late at night slash early in the morning. Tonight, we went to Papago Park. From the moment we arrived, there was a car parked but no one in the car. We thought maybe somebody was sleeping but upon quickly glancing, we didn't see anybody so we went to the park. From the moment we stepped out of the car, I saw a tall, lanky, humanoid looking. Something. I thought it was a person, but after blinking it disappeared. My friend then saw the same figure, except black, a short distance from where I had spotted it. We figured our minds were just playing with us so we went and decided to swing. The whole time we heard rustling around us. She started to get nervous, so we started walking back to my car. I could see a small black figure pacing quickly, almost running, back and forth between the trees. We were talking about it amongst ourselves when the car alarm went off. We booked it from my car and got in. As we drove away, there was still no sight of any actual person in the car or park. I went the wrong direction when we started leaving so I had to do a U-turn and as I drove away we could see the figure again pacing between trees. We were so freaked out that we stopped at a gas station, where I'm writing this, to google what it could have been. Does anybody have any clue what we may have seen tonight? My brother-in-law and his friend were sharing a tent when they joined us in camping for the weekend. When they woke up, they immediately questioned us as to who was walking around messing with them that night. He looked at me first, but I slept all night, as did my brother and my father. They then were very confused as to what it could be, because they said that something with massive rough hands grabbed their feet, which were hanging out of the unzipped tent to allow for ventilation in the heat, and pushed them aside, and back into the tent. They were awake while this happened, and immediately looked outside their tent and saw nothing. They zipped up their tent and couldn't sleep all night. I was with two friends. We were sitting there on the rocks. It was getting dark. All of a sudden we started hearing rustling sounds. All of a sudden we started seeing figures moving around behind us. We were smoking cigarettes and I guess they must have been attracted to the smell. I thought it was cops with dogs. I don't know exactly how many figures there were but there were more than two. All of a sudden they stopped moving and sort of disappeared into the surroundings. We didn't know what to think. We were literally scared out of our wits so we just stood up and casually walked away. I have had numerous experiences by myself and with others in this park that corroborate this initial experience. The night was thick with tension as we stood on the precipice of the unknown. 
I was part of a team from the U.S. Special Forces, sent deep into the heart of a remote forest to confront a menace that defied understanding. It all began with a chilling tale of military experiments gone terribly wrong. In the heart of the forest, a clandestine laboratory had unleashed an unthinkable horror upon the world. Genetic experiments had given birth to monstrous abominations, creatures that existed only in the darkest corners of our nightmares. These entities, twisted by unnatural forces, roamed the forest with an insatiable hunger, preying on any unfortunate souls who ventured too close to their lair. We were not the first to confront this menace. A group of hikers, unsuspecting and unprepared, had stumbled upon the forest, unaware of the horrors that awaited them. Their terrifying encounter was a gruesome testament to the horrors that lurked within. The call had come in, and our team was dispatched to deal with the nightmare that had been unleashed. Our mission was clear, eliminate the creatures, close the laboratory, and contain the insidious threat that had escaped. The forest was an unforgiving maze, its depths concealing the horrors that lurked within. Armed with advanced weaponry and a steely resolve, we advanced cautiously, our senses sharp, every rustle of leaves and snap of twigs echoing through the forest, sending shivers down our spines. The creatures emerged from the shadows, grotesque and nightmarish. They were twisted and deformed, a fusion of biology and unbridled madness. But our training had prepared us for the worst, and we engaged them with a determination born of necessity. In the heart of the battle, we fought against the unnatural horrors, each moment a test of our resolve and courage. The forest became a battlefield, and the night was filled with the roar of gunfire and the guttural cries of the creatures. As the night wore on, we pushed deeper into the forest, hunting down every abomination that crossed our path. The creatures, for all their monstrous strength, could not withstand the coordinated onslaught of trained soldiers. Finally, we reached the source of the horror, the laboratory hidden deep within the forest. We destroyed it, ensuring that the experiments that had created these monstrosities would never happen again. With the laboratory in ruins, we knew that the threat had been contained. Our mission was a success, and the forest, once a place of unspeakable terror, was freed from the grip of the unknown predator. As we stood among the ruins of the laboratory, we knew that we had done what was necessary to protect our world from the horrors of unchecked science. Our mission had been a grim one, but we had faced the darkness and emerged victorious. The laboratory was no more, the creatures were eradicated, and the forest was at peace once more. Our duty was fulfilled, and we left the forest, knowing that we had closed the chapter on a nightmare that should never have been. While performing the Queen's Guard duty at Windsor Castle in the UK, we guards have our own time to relax after the castle closes to the public. During the night, there have been a couple of occasions where the faint sound of an organ could be heard emanating from inside an unoccupied part of the castle. These occurrences happened when there were no royals in residence, and despite police officers and guards searching the premises, nothing was ever found. There are also stories of a soldier who tragically took his own life in the rear gardens decades ago. 
Many claim to have seen his ghostly figure standing in windows at night, although personally, I haven't witnessed such sightings. Additionally, being on guard duty at the Tower of London can be incredibly eerie, especially when patrolling alone at night. The feeling of being watched from every angle is quite unsettling. I had the opportunity to speak with a laid-off forestry worker who was enrolled in the Displaced Workers Program at Lane Community College. He had a remarkable story to share, one that sent chills down my spine. This encounter took place back in the early 90s, and it involved him and a co-worker embarking on a fishing trip. As they made their way up a rugged dirt road alongside a peaceful creek, they heard an unusual splashing sound that immediately caught their attention. Intrigued, they followed the noise until they emerged from the dense forest, and that's when they saw it, a Bigfoot, standing in the creek just about a hundred feet away. Time seemed to freeze as their eyes locked with the mysterious creature. They stood in awe, unable to comprehend the sight before them. It was a moment of intense curiosity mixed with fear. Without exchanging a word, they both knew it was time to retreat. Their hearts pounding, they raced back towards their pickup truck, navigating through the dense forest and up an embankment that led to the road. Adrenaline fueled their every step. The memory of that creature's piercing gaze fueled their determination to escape its presence. As he scrambled to climb into the truck, the worker couldn't resist stealing a quick glance down the embankment. What he saw chilled him to the core. The Bigfoot had followed them, its eyes fixated on their every move. It peered up at them, its large hand gently holding up a branch as if inquisitively studying them. The worker's mind raced with a mix of astonishment, confusion, and a touch of terror. How could something so seemingly mythical be standing there, observing them with such curiosity? With no time to ponder further, he hastily jumped into the safety of the truck, and together they sped away from that haunting scene. The memory of that encounter has stayed with him ever since, a constant reminder of the unknown and the mysteries that exist beyond our understanding. It's a tale he often reflects upon, wondering about the nature of that elusive creature and the secrets it holds within the depths of the forest. In sharing this extraordinary story, the worker left me with a lingering sense of wonder and a profound respect for the mysteries of the natural world. Sometimes, the most astonishing encounters happen when we least expect them, forever altering our perception of what is possible. I grew up listening to the eerie tales and legends that were woven into the very fabric of our small Irish village. One story that I still vividly remember is that of the widower and his late wife. In our village, there lived a couple who had a beautiful house but never had any children. The wife's death hit the husband hard, leaving him in a cloud of sorrow. She was buried far away, almost on the outskirts of another city. Yet, whispers began to spread that the wife was visiting her husband every night, even in death. Residents living near the widower's house reported a terrible stench in the early hours, accompanied by mournful moans echoing through the darkness. They claimed to have seen a decaying figure entering the house on several occasions. 
fearful of what might happen, the neighbors warned the widower about the strange nightly visitor. He, however, denied experiencing anything unusual. Suspicions grew among the villagers, who believed that the widower was hiding a macabre secret relationship with his deceased wife. One fateful night, they saw the rotting woman, covered in mud and dressed in rags, wandering close to the houses before making her way to the widower's home. As dawn broke, the villagers found muddy footprints leading inside the house, yet the widower still denied the rumors. No one could ever prove that it was, indeed, the late wife visiting her husband. But the legend persisted, and it's said that after the widower passed away, the ghostly woman was never seen again. Stories like these are a testament to the rich folklore that makes Ireland so enchanting. From tales of gnomes, elves, and leprechauns, there is no shortage of strange and mysterious beings that capture our imaginations. As I've grown older, I've come to appreciate these stories even more, recognizing that there is far more to the world than what meets the eye. And though these tales may send shivers down our spines, they also serve as a reminder of the magic and wonder that lie just beneath the surface of our everyday lives.